From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Wade Menezes. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. We are not going to be taking your phone calls today. This is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. When the mailbag gets heavier than Father Wade... We take a show to empty out some of the contents of the mailbag so that we can move forward safely. Jack, if you were all in green, which you're not, I would call you the Wizard of Oz because the (laughs) wizard was behind the curtain, the man behind the curtain. (laughs) So we will not be taking your phone calls today, a very special mailbag edition. But even though it's a special mailbag edition of Open Line Tuesday, we are not going to leave you without a springboard topic. That's right. That would just be wrong. It would go against conscience. It would. So we are going to uh, very much engage in a springboard topic. And today's springboard topic is the importance of a rightly formed conscience. And I went against my conscience printing it all out in blue ink because my printer was out of black ink. (laughs) Which reminded me I have to get a a black cartridge for my printer, a black ink cartridge. Yes, Importance of a rightly informed conscience, Jack. You know, we live in a day and age when people often, and and rightly so, want to make moral decisions based on personal conscience. Uh, This is fine and good, no doubt. But the question remains, is the person making their decision with a rightly formed conscience or a wrongly formed one? Huh? Uh, Anyone can follow their conscience, true enough, and indeed they should. Even the church would teach that. But common sense also tells us that no one would want to make a personal decision based on an erroneous conscience, that is, a conscience that is an error. Uh, In short, we can say that conscience is not meant to formulate or manufacture truth. Rather, conscience is meant to discover and locate and embrace the truth. Uh, Conscience can be said to be very much like a trust. It can either be treasured and enlarged upon, or it can be treated nonchalantly and compromised, and if compromised, I might add, it is destructive of true life. So, you see, one's conscience, according to church teaching, is never to be the final arbiter of a decision. Rather, one's rightly formed conscience is to be the final arbiter of a decision. So, how does one rightly form or inform his or her conscience? Well, by looking to the teachings of Christ and his bride, the Church, upheld by sacred scripture, tradition, and the magisterium, and safeguarded by the sacred deposit of faith. And you can find beautiful definitions for all four of those, sacred scripture, tradition, and the magisterium, and the deposit of faith, uh, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Just simple definitions, even in the glossary at the back of the Catechism. While the human person is sometimes confronted with situations that make moral judgments less assured and decisions more difficult, no doubt, one must always seriously seek what is right and good and discern the will of God expressed in both divine and natural law. Church teaching identifies conscience as the interior voice, quote-unquote, of a human being, 
within whose heart the inner law of God is inscribed, especially the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the natural law. Huh? The natural law stems from the Ten Commandments. Conscience is what moves a person at the appropriate moment to do good and to avoid, eel, the, uh, to avoid evil, to choose this good versus choosing this bad, to pursue this virtue as opposed to choosing uh, this vice, huh? to want to choose this thing for my bet- betterment as opposed to this thing to my detriment. Uh, conscience must therefore be formed and moral judgments enlightened. A well-formed conscience is upright and truthful, simply put. It formulates its judgment according to right reason, in conformity with the true good willed by the wisdom of the Creator. And I might add that the pursuance of virtue and virtuous living is about pursuing the true good, huh? In concrete daily actions with the five bodily senses, sight, smell, taste, touch, and hearing, and the four faculties of the soul, intellect, will, memory, and imagination. Again, a well-formed conscience is upright and truthful. It formulates its judgments according to right reason in conformity with the true good willed by the wisdom of the Creator. So important is the formation of conscience, in fact, that its education is indispensable for human beings who are subjected to negative influences and tempted by sin to prefer their own judgment over the moral law and to reject authoritative teachings, whether they do this in malice or whether they do this in ignorance. In short, we can say that conscience is not meant to formulate or manufacture the truth. Again, rather, conscience is meant to discover, locate, and embrace the truth. Conscience can be said, as I said earlier, to be very much like a trust. It can either be treasured and enlarged upon or it can be treated nonchalantly and compromised. And if compromised, it can be destructive to true life. Why? Because we get away from the natural law. We get away from the Ten Commandments. We get away from what has been revealed to us through the three-legged stool of Scripture, tradition, and the magisterium. Uh, We get away from what's safeguarded by the sacred deposit of faith. And then some quotes uh, to end our springboard here, uh, some quotes from the New Testament on having a clear conscience. I love these. And this is just a collection of uh, of eight of them. There's more, of course, but these are just eight. Uh, Acts 23, verse 1, quote, Paul looked intently at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have conducted myself with a perfectly clear conscience before God to this day. And Acts 24, verse 16, quote, I always strive to keep my conscience clear before God and man. And Hebrews 13, verse 18, Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a clear conscience, wishing to act rightly in every respect. And 1 Peter 3, verse 16, what I like to call, Jack, the first papal encyclical, because that's exactly what it is. We read this, keep your conscience clear so that whenever you are defamed, those who libel your way of life in Christ may be shamed. And 1 Peter 3, verse 21, we seek not a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a clear conscience. And 1 Timothy 3, verse 9, all are called to hold fast to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And 2 Timothy Timothy 1, verse 3, I am grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience. 
And lastly, of my eight quotes here on conscience, 1 John 3, verse 21, the first letter of John, chapter 3, verse 21, if our consciences have nothing to charge us with, we can be sure that God is with us. And that makes for a a sound pillow at night, I might add. A clear conscience makes for a sound pillow, as the old saying goes. And this leads us to, to my last point I want to make, is the importance of making a good, solid examination of conscience before making your monthly confession. And if you go to fathersofmercy.com, and on the search bar, which comes up immediately when you click on the magnifying glass icon, type in the word examination of conscience and our PDF file ready to print out on your home computer. Hopefully you'll have black ink. <laughs> if not, at least some blue, blue ink. Uh, print out the Fathers of Mercy examination of conscience. It's right there. It's a great one. It's a fantastic one. I know that EWTN.com also has a great one as well. Uh, and look at it for about five minutes before you go into the confessional. No need to become scrupulous or suffer from scrupulosity. A good examination of conscience before your monthly confession should take no longer than five minutes. Do you advocate at any point, like perhaps during the Easter season to maybe make a more thorough examination of conscience? Yes, uh, that, would lean, that would lean towards what's called a, a general confession. Not so much for liturgical feasts, because they happen so frequently annually, but the Church's mind, the, the tradition of the Church, Jack, has been to make a general confession of all the sins of your past life. When there's about to be a major change in your state and life or vocation, for example, you're about to get engaged, or you're about to get married, you're about to go off to the military, you're about to go off to college for the first time, you're about to purchase a business and go into business for your own, which bears a lot of responsibility with it, let alone the financial responsibility. When there's ever a major state change of, of your state in life or within your, your state in life, that's when you want to make a, a, a general confession. But make it clear to the priest that the first part of your confession are your sins from just your last confession, say a month ago. And then when you're done with those, you'll let him know when you're making a general confession of all the sins of your past life, they are already confessed and already forgiven. You're not confessing them now or for the forgiveness purposes, because they're already forgiven. Rather, you're mentioning them now for the ongoing healing of them and for the graces to be received for this new change in your state in life. So a difference between confessing them and mentioning them, that is, those sins from your past life that constitute the general confession. Your conscience will be formed. That's right. It's up to you whether it's well-formed or poorly formed. Exactly. But the church gives you the guides for it. That's exactly right. Again, this is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. But uh, send us an email anyway, openline at EWTN.com, and we may be part of a, a future mailbag. Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Very best, very special, rather, mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes in the house, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. But that's only partially true because we have some folks that have held over from a previous um, live show of EWTN Open Line Tuesday. So we're going to give them a chance to answer their questions now. First up will be Rose in Tulsa, Oklahoma. She listens on Oklahoma Catholic Radio, a first-time caller. Rose, thanks for holding on. You're on with Father Wade. Thank you. Hi, Father Wade. Hello, Rose. Uh, Thank you for your call today from Tulsa. Oh, thank you. Um... My question is about, uh, my husband and I were married Catholics. We were Catholics for a long time. Um, 
he went to a sort of grace non-denominational church, and that's where he's been for quite a few years. Uh, different churches, he's gone to quite a few. Um, our kids are Catholic. Um, my grandkids go to Catholic school. Um, a lot of times there's church functions. Sometimes he comes on Easter with all of us and different things. Now, he goes up for communion. Um, I know that's not a correct thing to do because he hasn't gone to confession, doesn't practice regularly. Um, and I'm wondering, should I talk to him about it? Sure. Because if yeah. I talk to him about it, then he will know that it's wrong, where right now he doesn't think it's wrong. Correct. I had a friend who um, their son uh, told their father that they shouldn't go to communion because he didn't go regularly to church, and he now no longer goes to any church functions because uh, he thought it was ridiculous and he got mad. Right. Well, to answer your, your immediate question, yes, you should witness to your husband that what he's doing is wrong. As a, as a baptized Catholic, whether he's a cradle Catholic or a convert to the faith later on in life, the fact is he's a baptized Catholic. So while he can attend a Protestant service now and again because of a special circumstance, um, it should not usurp his Sunday Mass obligation to fulfill his obligation of going to Mass, the source and summit of the entire Christian life where we receive the Eucharist, which we believe is truly, really, and substantially the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you, you can't have it both ways. The Protestants themselves admit in their doctrines, we don't believe this is the Eucharist. If your husband doesn't believe it's the Eucharist, he shouldn't receive it, period. If he does believe it's the Eucharist, he should receive it in a properly uh, disposed fashion, and then he needs to question, well, then why am I going to a Protestant uh, faith church if I do believe in the doctrine of the presence? So it's all, it all depends where he's at, quote-unquote, Rose, where he's at. The good news is that God is willing to meet him where he's at, the good news is that chances are, I don't know this for certain, I'm saying this objectively, not subjectively, objectively speaking, chances are your husband's acting in ignorance here. He's not acting in malice. In other words, he's not saying, well, I believe in the Protestant doctrines and I don't believe in the Eucharist, but by gosh, I'm going to go continue to receive it anyway. I mean, I doubt he's acting in malice like that. Chances are he's acting in sincere ignorance. In fact, you yourself kind of intimated that when you said, quote, he, he probably doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't realize the gravity of what he's doing. That's where you come in. Again, the three hallmarks of fraternal correction. In this case, a wife giving fraternal correction to her husband regarding uh, a practice that he's doing that is not conducive to his salvation, uh, that is receiving the Eucharist unworthily. He needs to be reconciled first. So the three hallmarks of fraternal correction, privately, charitably, and rarely, you want to tell your husband that, you know, honey, you may not be aware of this, but number one, this is what we believe about the Eucharist. It's, it's truly, really, and substantially the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord. Secondly, honey, it's a doctrine of the faith that you cannot receive it and yet nonchalantly, Sunday after Sunday, be attending a Protestant faith. In fact, just from a rational point of view, it doesn't make sense, because if you believe it's the Eucharist— in the Catholic Church, then why are you attending the Protestant faith? If you don't believe it's the Eucharist, then why do you continue to receive it? So even rationally, if one, we could set faith aside and answer this just from a—or look at this just from a rational point of view. It doesn't make sense what he's doing. It simply doesn't make sense what he's doing. And so you don't want to happen with him 
what happened to the other relative who, when one of his own sons approached him, I believe you said it was one of his sons, approached him about receiving the Eucharist unworthily, the father quit going altogether. Well, you don't want that to happen to your husband either. You want him to quit receiving the Eucharist, but you don't want him to quit going to Mass. So you want to evangelize him privately, charitably, and rarely privately, so you would never bring this up during a family meal with all the other relatives present, for example. That would be very imprudent. You do it privately so as not to embarrass him in front of other people. You do it charitably because charity is queen of the virtues, and chances are he's acting in ignorance, not in malice anyway. And you do it rarely because he's an adult. He has to work out his own salvation with fear and trembling, St. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 12 of Philippians. And hopefully it's with a filial fear and not a servile fear. huh? And so uh, you want to approach him about this. Be ready. Be ready with the uh, teachings of the Church out of the Catechism. Uh EWTN frequently asks questions. Catholic.com, which is Catholic Answers out of San Diego, frequently asks questions. Those are my go-to websites for frequently asked questions that I like to share with people. You're going to want to look up the question, uh, just as you describe it about your husband, why he shouldn't be receiving if he continues to go to a Protestant church. Be ready to witness those answers to him. Uh, be ready to have your, your, your reasoning to share with him in a charitable way why what he's doing is wrong. So thank you, Rose. I hope that helps you out. Next, we'll head to Marlene in Columbus, Ohio. She listens to EWTN on St. Gabriel Radio. Marlene, thanks so much for holding. You're on with Father Wade. Hi. My question is that I've heard that um, some of the immunizations are made from uh, material taken from aborted fetal cells. And if that is indeed true, why do Catholic schools still um, want you to be fully immunized to attend their schools? Okay, great question, Marlene. It's a question that I cannot answer to the particulars of because I don't know for certain that these immunizations put out by different pharmaceutical companies are made from abortus, aborted fetus, fetal tissue. I, I don't know that. So I, it would be very imprudent for me to answer that in, the, in, in such a way that it's in, in the affirmative of that presumption or in the negative of that presumption. I just don't know. But I can answer to immunizations themselves. Uh, the Church teaches that, again, a parent, as an ambassador of Christ to their children, have primary care over their children in things academically, uh, religiously, temporally, spiritually, and health-wise. If a, if a parent has made the choice to not immunize their children, it's their choice, provided it doesn't go against any type of law that requires otherwise, because the Church would also teach on something like that. You know, we owe proper authority to government officials. Now, if the immunizations have been proven, like the polio one certainly has, and I received the polio vaccine when I was a child in the 60s, late 60s, um, I, I, would, I would want my children to have it if it's been a proven vaccine. Now, there's other vaccines that are not 100% proven yet. The church would teach that a parent has a right to withhold their child from that if it has not been proven and if the government does not does not either the local government or the school even the school district uh, if they require it then that's another question you might have to pull your kid out of school then and homeschool them but it would be your choice so i hope that answers your question marlene it's a very good one especially in this day and age when because of so many sexually transmitted diseases which doesn't bode too well in speaking for our culture there's a lot more immunizations out there and so that that's a very difficult thing if we're raising chase 
release children to kind of want them to have uh, an immunization specifically, for example, just against the sexually transmitted diseases. Number one, it sounds like we're not putting hope in our kids and raising them in virtue and virtuous living. We want them to succumb to the culture, which is not a good thing either. So balance in all things, parental right is supreme, but at the same time, parental prudence would want to take into account what the local requirements are for the for the school what's the school require even the catholic school as you intimate marlene what does the catholic school require what does the public school require and i might have to homeschool if i don't want my child to have that and another good resource for you may be marlene the national catholic bioethics center very good. Uh, run by father tad paholchek and you can find out that information at ncbcenter ncbcenter.org and uh, Father Tad and his team of ethicists can, uh, I'm sure they have plenty of information about vaccines uh, on the website there. Thanks so much for your phone call. We have an email here from Kimberly. She says, Father Menezes, hi there. I have a question regarding becoming Catholic. What if I have been baptized in a Baptist church? Does that still count in the Catholic church, or do I have to be baptized in a Catholic church? Yes, it it, it- it qualifies and is valid in the Catholic Church, your Baptist baptism, if your Baptist baptism was done appropriately in the Trinitarian formula. I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, with pure water. Uh, if, if the matter, the water, and the form, the formulary of the that was proper in its Trinitarian formulary, was present, uh, then yes, your your baptiz- baptism is valid and will be accepted by your Catholic parish. It would be great if your Baptist church mm-hmm. gave you a certificate indeed stating that so-and-so was baptized on such and such a date in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Trinitarian formula is right there on your Baptist church's certificate that they gave you as a gift showing that you were baptized. You could show that to your parish priest that you're entering the church under through the RCIA program at his parish, and he would look at it and he would say, oh yeah, we not only know you were baptized, we know you were baptized with the proper Trinitarian formula because it's printed right here on your Baptist church certificate. So we have the moral certitude that your baptism was valid, and therefore you do not need to be baptized at the Easter Vigil. So, uh, but you may not have that certificate, so then it's going to, he might he ha- he might ask you the question, or at least he should ask you, how old were you when you received your Baptist uh, baptism? And do you remember the Trinitarian formula? Was it was it proper? Was it valid? And if you can't remember it per se, he might have you do a conditional baptism at the Easter Vigil uh, with your RCA class members. And what a conditional baptism is, it's basically just a regular baptism. If the Baptist baptism was not valid to begin with, however many years ago that was, then the Catholic one at the Easter Vigil takes effect. If your Baptist baptism years ago was valid, then the Catholic one at the Easter Vigil does not take effect. It's simply called a conditional baptism. It's done in the regular way, and it all is dependent upon whether or not that first one in the Baptist Church was valid and how much you know about that Baptist baptism. might even be something that some pastors would do maybe prior to the Mass of Easter Vigil. Yes, some pastors... Yes, some pastors do do that. For those who are conditional candidates for baptism, because there's uncertainty there about their Protestant baptism, the proper matter and form, etc., <laughs> he might have those those conditional uh, members of the RCA class be baptized conditionally separately 
from the RCIA members that we know for a fact have never been baptized and will be baptized fully at the Easter Vigil. And for anybody who has questions like this who may be entertaining the notion of entering uh, Holy Mother Church or studying to do so, the first step would be with their pastor of their local parish. Yeah, that's right. He's the one you'd want to ask, or it could be that he delegated those questions to the local DRE, who heads up, Director of Religious Education, that is, who heads up the RCA program. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Uh, we're talking faith, family, and fellowship with our very own Father Wade Menezes of the Fathers of Mercy, as we do every Tuesday. If you would like to be a part of a future mailbag program, uh, by all means, please send us your email to openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. We won't be taking your phone calls today as we try to clear out the email bag a little bit. Terry in Kansas City, who listens to us via the EWTN app, writes in, Good afternoon, Father Wade. Thank you for your ministry and all your wonderful and holy advice on keeping us Catholics and non-Catholics with our eyes on the prize, Jesus. I love to hear your show. You are like E.F. Hutton. When you speak, I listen. Can't thank you enough. She said, I have a question. I like to get medals of Jesus, have them blessed by our priest, and put them in small envelopes with five with $5. I then hand them out to people asking for money. Then I was told by another very good and holy Catholic friend of mine that I should not do that because they've been blessed and that the beggars might just throw them away. I pray for them that this blessed metal might spark a little light and comfort to them and bring them closer to our Lord. What do you say? Thank you again, and I pray for you, Jack, and all the EWTN staff. Have a very blessed day. Oh, very interesting question and a beautiful practice that you have there of handing out uh, a religious medal blessed by your parish priest along with a, a $5 bill to give to the poor who are asking for, for assistance, uh, say maybe at the edge of an off-ramp or an on-ramp there. Uh, you know, I think it's a question of both and. I, I think your friend, your good Catholic friend, has a valid point that the person may just toss the medal away because they knew nothing about it until they opened the envelope. But if you do this instead... If you ask them, I'd like to give you a little something in addition to a little bit of, of, of a sustenance uh, financially. I'd like to give you a religious medal of our Blessed Mother or the Blessed Virgin Mary or a religious medal of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Would you accept that as well? So they know before you hand them the envelope that there's a little medal in there. And if they tell you yes, then it's on their conscience that if they toss it, they toss it. If they told you they're willing to accept the medal, they're willing to accept the medal. And you can give them that medal with a clear, clean conscience yourself. And I think it's a beautiful practice. What I'd like to do instead of a, of a medal, and I've given out medals in the past to, to those in need, I like to give an actual laminated holy card. Laminated because it'll last a little longer than just a, a paper holy card, but because it has a prayer on the back. If you give them a medal, there's no certitude that you're going to get that they're going to pray with that medal, that blessed medal, because it has nothing on it unless it's the miraculous medal that says, O Mary, concede without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee, and they may not know what that means. But if you give them a generic holy card of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ with a prayer to Jesus Christ our King on the back, for example, something generic that's appropriate for any Christian, um, they're more apt to take it and they're more apt to pray it. So I, I love your idea of giving something religious along with the $5 that you put in the envelope. But again, I would ask first 
are you willing to receive a little religious item from me? And if they say yes, you can give it with a clear conscience, to, regardless of what they end up doing with it. And secondly, I would ask them not to use the money for drugs. I'm going to give you a little bit of money, but I ask you not to use it for drugs. You have every right to say that. And thirdly, instead of a medal, a blessed medal, because again, what are they going to do with that? There's no chain. There's no nothing. You know, uh, They may not have a chain to put on. Give them a holy card, a laminated holy card that'll last a little longer because it's laminated and they're more apt to pray the prayer on the back. But a beautiful practice. Another good thing, another good way around that is you can give them maybe a little $5 gift certificate to a restaurant. Yes, and that helps uh, safeguard from the drug use. Yeah, so maybe uh, there's a lot of gift cards now, uh, you know, and, and uh, plastic gift cards that you can put a $5 on that and give that to them. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, but we won't need that today because it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, Old Habits Die Hard. (laughs) We have an email here from Deb in Massachusetts, and she says, Dear Father Wade, since watching your The Four Last Things series, I read St. Faustina's diary per your recommendation. I was intrigued and as a result feel a closeness to this remarkable saint. My question to you is, can people request to quote-unquote pay for the sins of other people as St. Faustina did? In other words, serve the purgatory that their loved ones would otherwise have suffered. The reason for the question, my family, including my mother, have said and done some terrible things to people. When I beg them not to do this, that this is not how Jesus would want us to behave, I was thrown out of their lives. Speaking to them is no longer an option as I was rejected. I know that they are doing I know what they're doing is wrong, however, I do love them and do not want them to risk their eternal happiness with our Lord. Other than praying for them, can I ask Jesus to let me suffer for them so that they can be with Jesus in heaven? I know Faustina made this request numerous times and it was granted to her. Thank you for your answer. God bless Deb. Yeah, great question, Deb, uh, and a loaded question, and I think in this case, rightly so. If those relatives and loved ones are living, you can make reparation for their sins. For example, like praying the chaplet, which was revealed to us by St. Faustina. Have mercy on us and on the whole world. You know, uh, Eternal Father, I offer you the body and blood, soul and divinity of your dearly beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. For what? In atonement for our sins— yourself and and your families and those of the whole world. So if they're living, we make atonement, we make reparation. You don't want to ask to take on their temporal punishment because they're still living. And the church doesn't ask you to take on their punishment, their temporal punishment, because they're still living. You can offer a plenary indulgence for a deceased person in purgatory. You can do that because they can no longer merit for themselves. That's why you can do it for themselves, for them, because they're in purgatory, the holy souls in in purgatory. But if they're living, they can still merit for themselves. But what you can do if they're still living, Deb, is make atonement and reparation for their sins, but not per se take on their punishment. Again, this is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. No phone calls today, please. We have uh, an email here from Allison. She says, hello, I believe I have a call to become a religious sister or nun. What is needed to enter a religious order? Is there anything that would hamper or delay a religious order, such as age, student loans, etc.? Also, does one need a spiritual advisor for discernment? Thank you, Allison. 
Great question, Allison. First, yes, if you're discerning consecrated religious life, I think it's wise to have a spiritual director who can help aid you in that discernment. And remember, a spiritual director per se does not need to be a priest. A confessor needs to be a priest, but a spiritual director does not need to be. So, for example, I know of several nuns who offer spiritual direction at parishes. The parish has given them an office. They receive a little stipend from the parish for being a spiritual director for the parish. And maybe a nun would be a great person for you to seek spiritual direction from. But make sure that such a nun or a lay person for that matter, and even a priest, if a priest ends up being your spiritual director, make sure that they're faithful, they love the church, they love the chair of Peter, they're right in line with the chair of Peter because you don't want to go to a spiritual director that is very progressive and liberal, nor one that is ultra-right that can lead you off track as well. We find virtue in the mean. We find virtue in the via media, being right in line with the chair of Peter. Swerve neither left nor right to the chair of Peter. So somebody who's faithful. So yes, I'm an advocate of a spiritual director if you're discerning for religious life. Now, to answer your your particular questions, what's required, what's needed to enter a religious order, is there anything that would hamper or delay entering a religious order, such as age, student loans, etc.? Well, uh, Allison, it depends on uh, the order you're looking at. Different orders of women, just like with different orders of men, will have different requirements. Some are willing to assume the student loans you have. Some might ask you to pay off the student loans you have. It all depends. Here's what I would do if I were you discerning at the very, very beginning. Number one, ask yourself, do I feel called to a contemplative community in the cloister or to an active community that carries out a particular apostolate? If you feel called to the latter, a particular active community that carries out an apostolate, what is that apostolate, Allison, that you feel called to do? Is it teaching in the classroom? There's a bunch of teaching orders out there. Is it uh, working with the sick and the poor, like the little sisters of the poor? Uh, Is it uh, teaching at the university level? Uh, like some of the Dominican sisters do? Uh, is it working uh, in, in rehab? Uh, wh- what do you feel called to do in that active apostolate? Then go and discern accordingly, according to the active and contemplative notions of religious life. If you're not sure whether you're called uh, to active or contemplative, go ahead and visit two of each. I like I like the number four when it comes to visiting religious orders because it, it, it's it's enough orders where you can get a sense of how they live their life and it can help you discern further and yet you don't become a member of the OPDs the Order of Perpetual Discernment which is the largest religious order in the United States I'm convinced of it uh, eight, 18 to 35 years of age as their members men and women they wear no particular garb or habit they wear civilian lay clothes and they're the Order of Perpetual Discernment it's the largest religious order in the United States I say that in jest, of course, but you don't want to become a member of the OPDs. huh? So find two contemplative orders, two active orders, and go visit them. And mind you, Allison, some religious orders are willing to help cover the costs of your visit to their come and see weekend or to their come and see week where you live in common with them, you pray with them, you recreate with them, uh, you carry out the apostolate with them, and you get a true sense of how they live their life. That's if you're not sure if you're called to active or contemplative. Go visit two of each. If you know for certain, I'm called to the contemplative life, okay, then pick out four contemplative orders. Or if you know, 
I'm called to the active life. Well, okay, go visit four active orders with four different particular apostolates. And while you're there visiting, that's when you can ask the particular questions from the mother prioress or the mother superior. Mother, I have so much dollar amount in, 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 loan, in loan debt from college. Uh, how do you handle that situation? And the mother superior will explain to you, or the, or the novice mistress, or the, the vocation directress of the community will explain to you how they handle those particular cases. And kind of along the same lines, TJ writes in, I joined the Catholic Church three years ago and want to imitate and study Franciscan friary and have had trouble finding groups, and it's difficult. Can I as a layperson start or practice Franciscan friary on my own, for example, wearing friar garments or, or taking on vows and preaching? I try to evangelize as best I can. Can I live out this role, or do I need to be recognized by the Church? Well, the, the, the good news is, uh, Travis, that the three years that you've already officially have been a Catholic is usually the time required for a new convert to the Church to wait until he's crossed the three-year threshold to look at religious life if he or she feels called a religious life. So the good news is you've met that threshold. You, can be lo- you could begin looking now, because most religious orders for converts to the faith want to see the person a full Catholic at least for three years before they enter the community. So you've met that mark. That's great. Now, you say Franciscan friary. I think you mean Franciscan spirituality. Maybe you're aware of a particular order of Franciscans, uh, Travis, and you've maybe have visited with them at their friary, because that's usually what the home of the friars is called, a friary. In fact, we have a Nunciation friary here, just adjacent to the EWTN grounds, where the Franciscan friars live, the missionary Franciscans of the Eternal Word, who help who help uh, oversee EWTN with spiritual direction. In fact, some of the brothers even run the cameras for the shows, the pre-tape shows and the live shows. So maybe the missionary Franciscans of the Eternal Word would be a great Franciscan order for you to visit, Travis, um, and, and visit with them for about a week or to come to one of their come-and-see weekends. Uh, but yes, uh, that'd be a great thing for you to do. It, it sounds like you're familiar with the Franciscan spirituality, you, you enjoy it. But even in that case, I would say as well, uh, once you visited one or two Franciscan friaries, don't, don't be afraid to visit a couple of other orders as well. First, ask yourself, do I call, feel called to contemplative life in a monastery, a life of enclosured prayer? Or do I feel called to the active life, like the missionary Franciscans are, are active? Uh, they Again, they help oversee EWTN. So uh, it's, it's a matter of answering that and then going and making f- com- some visits during the come and see weekends. Pick out four Franciscan communities or two communities that are Franciscans, two that are others. You could visit the Fathers of Mercy as well. And then uh, when you're there visiting, share with them about your debt situation. Be sure to tell them that you're a recent convert to the, f- to the faith three years ago. And they'll, they'll help you discern further uh, about uh, possibly submitting an application to them, the one that stands out for you the most. Even though we're not taking phone calls today, Father Ken Geraci just called and asked you, to give a plug for uh, the uh, Fathers of Mercy. Where would they look into uh, more detail about your order? At fathersofmercy.com. And we have our Come and See Weekends listed there. And you can write an email to Father Ken Geraci, our fantastic vocation director. Uh, I hope I get a plug from him for that. Uh, <laughs> by going to email him at vocations at fathersofmercy.com. That's the word vocation with an S at the end. Vocations at fathersofmercy.com. Email Father Ken. Tell him he'd like to come to, come to one of our Come and See Weekends. Uh, Margaret writes in, can I have your thoughts on the following? I've heard homilies that St. Joseph suspected that Mary's conception was divine, and so he felt unworthy to take the Immaculate Mary into his home. 
and this is why he decided to divorce her quietly. This would line up with the thought that Mary and Joseph had planned to have a celibate marriage, understood by Mary's response to the angel, how can this be as I do not know man? It also seems surprising that such a religious man, knowing the holiness of his betrothed, would be easily convinced of her lack of holiness. Yet scripture seems to say he thought she was unfaithful because of the words, since he was a righteous man yet unwilling to expose her to shame, decided to divorce her quietly. Such was his intention when... Thanks for your help. God bless you, Margaret. Great question, and the Church Fathers uh, debate this very topic. Uh, When Scripture says that since he was a righteous man, yet unwilling to expose her to shame, decided to divorce her quietly from their period of betrothal, they weren't married yet, it was because Joseph was keenly aware of what others would think, and she would be subject to the law of stoning. So it wasn't so much because of him, it was because of the culture and the people living at that time and what they would think of her, because people knew that they were only in the betrothal period, that they weren't officially married yet. So he wanted to protect Mary from the, from the, um, uh, from being stoned, from the sentencing is the word I'm looking for, from the sentencing of stoning for, for the sin of adultery, which would be the sin for even one betrothed, one who's committed to this one, even though the marriage ceremony has not taken place yet. And so there's good arguments, theologically, why you can hold that Joseph, uh, as as you so well point out, Margaret, in your in your overall question— What's the reason he did that? Uh, Was it because he didn't want to expose her to shame, and also because he had planned uh, to celebrate uh, the marriage? He understood Mary's response to the angel, how can this be yet because I do not know man? So either or, we know that Joseph was a righteous and just man who did not want to expose her to shame, ridicule, um, embarrassment, and most of all, have her subject to the law of death. He was her protector. Uh, Brian writes in, on a previous episode of Open Line Tuesday, you said that Protestant marriages can be considered sacramental as long as both are baptized. Explain how this can be, since Protestants don't necessarily consider marriage as sacramental. This is the case if both Protestants are baptized. They don't have to believe in marriage as a sacrament, but according to Catholic doctrine, their marriage is a sacrament— if both of them are baptized, and therefore their union is indissoluble, and they are able to practice the marital embrace only with each other and no other party. Uh, it makes it sacramental, and also for the benefit of the procreation and education of children, and of course the first part being for the good of the spouses. But to answer your question directly there, Brian, it's precisely because they're baptized. They are Christians, presuming, of course, those baptisms are valid Trinitarian baptisms. That's why it's considered still a sacrament, even though both are Protestant. We've got another Brian here who wrote in, and he and he's from Indian River, Michigan, which he points out is the home to the largest crucifix in the world, oh, the beautiful. cross in the woods. He says, Father Menin says, how long can one go between confession in order for a plenary indulgence to still be valid? Great, that's a great question. And uh, the answer would be around 20 days, because in the Book of Indulgences, it's made very clear 
that for several plenary indulgences or partial indulgences for that matter, sought in succession on successive days, one should try to go to confession at least every 20 days. Um, And that's within the one-month mark, which is lining up with the Church's time-honored tradition of confession once a month. It's 10 days shy of that once a month. But keeping confession within the 20 days, you don't want your confession sought after the 20th day. You want to keep it within the 20 days. And I think that's interesting because of this. In sacred scripture and in the life of the liturgy, 40 means something. We have the 40 days of Lent. We have the 40 days from Christmas Day to the presentation of the Lord. Um, We have the 40 days that Jesus was fasting in the desert. Uh, We have the 40 days that Moses uh, uh, was on top of Mount Sinai receiving the law. 40 means something, huh? Uh, 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 It it means such things as as the new springtime, uh, new life. Uh, new generated life, uh, conversion, uh, reversion. These are the themes of what 40 means. Well, if you go every 20 days before the sought indulgence and, and within 20 days every after the sought indulgence, that's in full a 40-day period. So the Church is keeping that image of the importance of 40 like she does in her liturgy and in her liturgical calendar and in the life of Scripture where 40 means something. She's keeping that 40 pattern, quote-unquote, that pattern of 40 within our regular spiritual life as well. If we go to confession within 20 days before the day of the sought indulgence, and if we go within 20 days after the day that the indulgence was sought. Esther writes in, Dear Father Wade, recently I had a discussion with our friend who studied theology many years ago and claims that the first 14 books of the Bible are not true, they are myths. There was no Adam and Eve, no original sin. Miracles that God performed were not real from where Cain and Abel got their wives. Also says church has not fully discovered God. Is it true? Was there evolution before Adam and Eve? Well, in answer to the validity of the 14 books, the first 14 books of the Bible, just look to the magisterium of the church. The Council of Carthage in 397 AD uh, solidified not only the canon of Scripture, uh, 46 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. Uh, the, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church at the Council of Carthage not only solidified the canon of Scripture, which would include the first 14 books that's, that's made reference to in this question uh, from, from Esther, um, but also the magisterium has spoken. Uh, Rome has spoken, the case is closed. Roma, uh, what's the old the, uh, Latin phrase? Uh, Roma locutus est, Causa finita est. Rome has spoken. The case is closed. Easy for you to say. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the magisterium, again, scripture, tradition, and the magisterium. So the canon of scripture also falls under the, ma- the tradition of the church, let alone the scripture itself following, uh, follow, following under the scripture of the church. And then the magisterium through the council has spoken. So that answers that. Uh, as far as the evolution question, yes, Pope Pius XII and Humani Generis, uh, specifically paragraphs number 35 through 38, Humani Ger- Generis uh, came out in 1950. He says that one can believe an evolutionary theory if one simultaneously holds the following five principles. And here they are. Number one, there is and only can be one set of first parents. In other words, no polygenism, no multiple sets of first parents, because if you hold that, then you're going to have, well, if that one first set of parents that fell in the original sin, but the other first parents did not, then you have part of the human race that has original sin and part of the human race that doesn't have original sin. And all you got to do is watch the nightly news to understand that the whole human race has original sin, huh? So 
you can believe in evolutionary theory if there's no polygenism, that you have to believe that we all stem from one set of first parents. Number two, that the soul is created immediately by God. Number three, you have to hold this. If there are evolutionary processes, they happen only within God's providential design and not by random chance or purposeless development. In other words, God's design in all things does have purposeful meaning and reason behind it, even if it is evolutionary. Number four, if one does hold evolutionary theory, one holds that it's just that, a theory, and not as a fact, because it is not proven as fact. And number five, if you adhere to evolutionary theory, you are thus bound to familiar, familiarize yourself simultaneously with the arguments against it as well. Again, because it's only a theory, right? Because Darwinian evolutionary theory has no purpose or design other than survival to the fittest, but theistic evolutionary uh, uh, doctrine has purposeful meaning and design. So if you hold those five things, you can believe in uh, evolutionary, evolutionary theory, and that's right, right from Pope Pius XII. Uh, and uh, very quickly before the end of the program here, Michael writes in that he just read your book, The Four Last Things. He thought it was fabulous. He wants to know why you didn't mention the brown scapular. Great question, uh, and I can do that in a second edition when I mention private devotions. But I wanted the four last things to be a quick 100-page read that's springboarded specifically from the Universal Catechism of the Catholic Church, specifically from the Church's doctrine on the four last things, not from pious devotion or private revelation regarding the four last things in salvation. And Michael's other question was, what if, let's say, a teenager commits a mortal sin which is forgotten about being a teenager, what happens at his or her judgment? Thus, I think he's asking, so it was never officially confessed because the teenager right. forgot about it. And although made subsequent confessions, never confessed that one mortal sin that he made, that he committed as a teenager. Uh, it was never confessed, so there will have to be atonement for it, temporal atonement for it, for it either on earth or in purgatory, because those are the two places where we can atone for temporal punishment. Uh, this is why the examination of conscience is so important prior to making a good confession, because you can go back in your past, even back to your teenage years. That said, we never want to become scrupulous over an examination of conscience or make an examination of conscience. Five minutes before you walk into the confessional is all your examination of conscience should take, no longer than that. And the daily examination of cons conscience, which you end with an act of contrition, the particular one is done at midday because you're looking at a particular virtue you're trying to advance or a particular vice you're trying to uproot, is just a minute, minute and a half. That's it, 90 seconds. And then the general examination of conscience you make at the end of the day where you're looking at your whole day generally, again, is just a minute to a minute and a half, 60 to 90 seconds, and you close it with an act of contrition. Uh, but the actual act of contrition, spend no more than five minutes on it before going into the confession. One more time, where can they find more? about your religious order at fathersofmercy.com would you leave us with a blessing i certainly will may the blessing of almighty god the father and the son and the holy spirit descend upon all of our open line tuesday listeners and remain with you all this day and always saint joseph terror of demons pray for us on behalf of our host father wade menezes and our producer michael mccall i'm jack williams thanks so much for tuning in to ewtn's open line tuesday until we get together next time god bless